Hey guys, before this episode starts, I just wanted to give out a trigger warning. This episode does talk about sexual abuse and satanic ritual abuse in detail. So if you're not at an emotional or mental place where you're able to handle hearing conversations about those things, please stop here, reach out to the Lord, and seek out the healing and comfort you need. You are now listening to Testimonies with Terry. Hey, what's up, everyone, and welcome to Testimonies with Terry. I'm your host, Terry Skaggs, and you can find me on Instagram at TWTerryPod and on Facebook at the Testimonies with Terry podcast page. On this episode, I'm going to be talking to one of the strongest and most courageous people I've ever met. She spent her whole childhood being abused by her mom, which led to numbing the pain with drugs and alcohol before she was even a teenager. From there, she takes you on the journey of getting married, having kids, and losing her kids because of her trauma and addictions. She then goes into detail about how God sent people to her at the exact perfect time to lead her out of the darkness and into the light. However, while getting treatment, she discovered she needed more than just treatment. She needed deliverance as well because memories of being involved in the satanic church surfaced for the first time in her life. She shares how Jesus delivered her and how he's using her to help bring deliverance to others now. Ladies and gentlemen, this is Jennifer Bonnet's testimony. All right, guys. Well, I'm excited because on today's show, we got an amazing warrior of the faith, Jennifer Bonnet. Jennifer, thank you so much for coming on the show. Thank you for having me. It's an honor to be here. Yeah, I saw your uh, interview that you did with CBN uh, a couple months ago, and I was able to reach out to you, connect with you, because I, I knew in reading your testimony and reading the article that they did on you that you'd be a perfect fit for this show. You know, it's all about sharing testimonies, how we glorify God, how we kick Satan's butt. And <laughs> you fit that description perfectly. So it's a real honor for me to be able to talk to you. Thank you. Thank you so much. And Jennifer, you have, again, a, a very interesting and complex story. Typically on the show, we go you know, chronological order, and we go into things, you know, in that order. But for you, this is going to be a little bit different. So why don't you explain to the listeners, maybe why your testimony is going to be a little bit different? Um, okay. My life has been extremely dark and demonic since I was born. Um, so a lot of the things that went on during my childhood, I did not no, until I got saved and was filled with the Holy Spirit. So I'm going to tell my testimony exactly the way my testimony is, because what happens is when I got saved and filled with the Holy Spirit, my entire life and why things happen and why things they were made sense 
when I got filled with the Holy Spirit and the Lord revealed why it was the way it was. So as we go through my life and what had happened and what the enemy tried to do to destroy me um, will make sense later on when the Lord showed me. That makes complete sense. And I'm, I'm here for it, Jennifer. So where would you like to start with your story, Jennifer? Um, let's just start from, from the beginning. Um, I, w- I was born in Newport News, Virginia, to a father that was a nuclear physicist, and my mother was a nurse. Um, I have two older brothers that are about 12 years older than me. So it was almost as if I was an only child. I remember uh, my life starting off, like my first memories going back, what started with some abuse on me. Uh, When I was babysat, my babysitter abused me. Um, I was molested by her at the age of two or three. I can remember that. So starting in that, I mean, the enemy was already at work in my life with abuse. Uh, So when we moved from Newport News, we moved to New York, upper state New York. I remember the snow and how much I love the snow. And I, I can remember my brothers going away for school. And I would be home alone with my mom and my dad worked quite a bit. He, he was a workaholic pretty much. He, he didn't spend much time at home. Um, I know back then, even as a very young little girl, I was very, very alone. My mother was extremely abusive as well. And I remember her putting me in the basement. At a young ch- as a young child and just sitting on the stairs waiting to for my brothers to get home because that's when she let me out. So I was already extremely isolated, pushed down, pushed away. And I thought it was normal to be done like that. And it was hidden. It was a hidden actions from my mother that um, just, I guess, kind of amplified the loneliness. I felt isolated and alone. It kind of amplified that because she hid that. And um, I, I just was a very sad little girl. Yeah. Would mom put you in the closet as like punishment or what was her reasoning for doing that? Um, her saying to me that that's I, where I needed to be, um, at that young age, I don't have, I don't recall a reason why at that young age, I remember just waiting, like sitting in the stairs and waiting until she would open that door when my brothers got home. And I would be excited when they got home from school, because I knew that that was the time I'd be let out and I I could play. I can recall how I felt, though, like it was expected almost as if all children were done like that. So I accepted it as a part of my life at that time, um, just because I was so young, too. 
Um, and it was a, on a regular basis. So I thought that was just normal, but it, it, it started to carve and mold my mind and, um, my heart at a young age, um, to be pushed down and isolated. And it started to curve the way I thought and especially the way I thought of myself. Um, we, I remember after that, we moved all the way to the other side of the country to San Diego. We lived in a little condominium out there. It was, my dad was again working. Um, my mother was a nurse and a lot of time my older brothers would babysit me, so to speak. By this time, my brother's probably 13 or 14 of age. And um, my other brother's about a year younger. And so they they would take care of me while my parents were gone. Um, I didn't, I know that I didn't like to be at home. I know that during that time of my life, I would run a lot, like run away from the house a lot. Um, and the, the fear that I had as a child of just not wanting to be home. Um, one of my strongest memories that come out of that is I was so desperate to leave that I climbed a eight foot wall wooden fence without trying to hurdle that fence with getting splinters all over my body. I was so desperate to leave. It was so intense for me at that time. Um, like I said, all these things that are coming up for me, memories wise, I can't understand why I was so desperate. And so I would do anything it took to get away from that house. And that was going to be my question for you, Jennifer, is if if you could like identify why, why did you want out of the house so bad? But that makes sense if you can't really remember back to that time, just with all the trauma that you've been through. But clearly you didn't feel safe at home is what right. it sounds like to me. Yeah. And um, I was always so fearful. I would latch on to neighbors and, and people that I, strangers, basically, um, that I didn't know um, to get away from the house. Um, my family would have to always search for me. And of course, you know, my mother being the way she was, if she came home from work and couldn't find me, um, there was there was huge repercussions for that from her but as a child I was so I didn't want I I was trying to get away I was trying to get away and so I was always so scared that they would find me and uh, all my memories were just always of running away and hiding it would be in the woods somewhere in in the playground somewhere that they had at this community or in someone's house people I didn't know. I was so willing to do whatever it took to get away. And I was always hiding. It's like, I'd look back on that and I feel so bad for that little girl and what she went through. And I'm like, why am I so desperate to get out of that house and get away? And I couldn't understand that as an adult. Um, so as time goes on, um, 
some of my memories as an adult that came back were I, I remember being repeatedly raped over and over, but this would be in the house at the at the condominium. Um, I couldn't remember who it was. Uh couldn't remember why, or I can remember where it was. I can remember whoever it was would have me focus on a on a ceramic mouse so that I it wouldn't hurt so bad, you know, and and I so I knew, okay, get the ceramic mouse, put it in front of me while I'm getting raped. And it was from behind. So I can I can see all that. I can't see who that was. So to me as an adult, when I look back, I'm thinking that's why I ran away so much. You know, that's why I didn't want to be home because that memory is from my home. And and of course, whoever it was made it seem like that was normal. This was supposed to happen. The doctor wants this is what's going to make you better. The doctor says you, this has to happen. So um, that's what was said to you. Yes, wow. that's what was said to me. So that so, of course, I hated doctors. You know, yeah. I, I couldn't make sense of of anything as a child um, that being verbally, physically and sexually abused. Of course, that will that will start up a lifestyle of low self-worth, self-hatred, self-destruction, self-harm. Um, and it leads on to a lifestyle of abuse. And that's pretty much all those things that I can remember that came against me until the age of eight. Um, and then we moved from the age we moved completely to the other side of the United States again over to um, Boston. I know when we moved to Boston, which was very strange, um, we lived in like a hotel. And I remember my mother kept would say, um, do not leave this hotel room. Almost as if, and if someone ever comes to you or talks to you, you tell me. So looking back, and it was very, very, it was so extreme. And um, so it made me feel like, okay, is somebody after us? Is, is there a reason why I can't go outside? Is there a reason why if anyone comes to, to looking like talking to me or talking to my brothers or anything along those lines, it was a very serious, like, it's like almost like a fear that was coming from her. Um, we eventually got out of the hotel and moved into a home. And, um, during that time I started school, I, I had missed a little school, of course, because we were in this hotel for a while. So I must've missed like months of schooling. So I went into the third grade and during the time of third grade on up till uh, probably about 14, something around through there. Um, I was extremely abused by my mother. It was a daily abuse. My dad was not home. My brothers were older by this time, probably at 
fixing to graduate high school. Um, I know that in my home, there was, from my recollection, I can't even remember a time that my brothers had a conversation, like talk to each other, which is very strange. Yeah. Um, my, my family really didn't talk. I can't remember one conversation between those two. Um, I don't remember much conversation between my mother and father. Um, my dad worked every day, but Sunday. And during the time of elementary school, it it was an, I missed a lot of school doing during due to her abuse. I know that, um, I didn't experience from what I recall, any sexual abuse from my house at that time. Um, I did get, um, a few teachers that attempted to molest me and, um, do things to me during the school, um, during that time. How did you deal with that then, Jennifer? How did you deal with that? Because I think typically in those situations, a kid would tell their parent, but your parents didn't seem overly emotionally involved, compassionate. So how did you deal with those advances from the teachers? Um, I know that I started to cut um, self-harm. I cut in my private parts and my private areas thinking maybe they'll leave me alone. Um, I was extremely suicidal at such a young age. Uh, I remember I didn't have anybody at school. I didn't have anybody at home and I just didn't want to live anymore. I, I can, I remember walking down the street. Um, I, I didn't want to go home. I didn't want to go home. And so I wouldn't take the bus. So it wouldn't take, so it would take me longer to get home and I would walk. And there was a train track and a train. And I used to think if I jump in front of the train or if I jump in front of a car, maybe I could just die. And then I don't have to worry about this anymore. And I didn't have anyone to turn to. So for me, Cutting was a good release for me, and I thought it was protecting me as well. Um, By the age of nine, I was stealing liquor from uh, a friend's family, like, I mean, a friend's parents' house. So whenever I went to a few of my friends' house, I would steal liquor and bring it home and hide it and hide it in the woods, and I would drink every day. That's when I started drugs and alcohol at the age of nine. Wow. So I was cutting, I was suicidal, and I was drinking. So that's what I turned to. There I found the the silly thing is, is how I figured out about drinking was I saw it on TV. Back in the day in soap operas, they would come home and be like, oh, I've had a bad day. I need a drink. And I thought, does that help you? So I started that. Um I stayed in the woods a lot, Terry, um, by myself, um, and did the best I could not to go home. I, I, I hated me so bad at that young age already. And part of the cutting, there were several reasons why I cut, um, because I hated myself so bad, um, because it helped release the pain. 
And I was hoping that it would keep people away from me. At a young age, because I was already so distorted, I was already so sick. I was so sick. And one of the things I had to go through during my healing to forgive myself for was I would, it didn't matter who it was. I would always try to do something sexual to the other kids that were around me. Now, granted, I was a kid, but I still feel like when I, as an adult, looking back, like I was molesting them, even though I was the same age, I was always trying to, my main goal playing with other children was to have oral sex with them. That was my goal. And when I look back as an adult, I'm like, why was I doing that? Um, Now, I understand that I had sexual abuse as a child, but still it, it was it was just my constant focus and drinking and cutting and, and, and doing sexual things with other children. And I just, and then not having any communication in that house and my mom, the intensity of abuse from her. I mean, it was every day I got home and all night long and not being able to go to school because my mom would take the iron and just do it on my face and just my hands and my, I, I just, why, why it just didn't make any sense to me. So drugs and alcohol became very prevalent in my life at a young age. And that's where I found my coping mechanism, so to speak, you know, yeah. of course, during any of this time, I did not know of God or Jesus, or never went to church, never heard about anything like that. So drugs and alcohol were, were my, were my coping. That's what filled me. I'm curious, Jennifer, if I can intervene here, going back to you talking about wanting to achieve oral sex with the other children. I'm wondering Do you think it was maybe a control issue? We know that people that grow up in very abusive and neglected homes, they kind of fall into one or two, one of two types of attachments, either the controller and their big belief is I need to be in control or else I'm going to be controlled or the victim where they just kind of go along with whatever, because that's just what I'm used to doing. It's just less painful that way. I'll just take whatever abuse that the person wants to give me. So I'm wondering, did you maybe have this thought that, Hey, I need to act on these kids or on these, you know, people before they act on me. Um, now that you asked that, I think it was a combination of both. Um, as far as the other children, for sure, I um, I was control. It was controlling them and every situation, for sure. And in asking me that, I can see both, um, where I had no control over anything whatsoever, but I could control that. I could control them. And I am in charge of this. And as far as the victim part, 
there is for sure where I couldn't win that battle. I couldn't do it. So I allowed people to treat me however, whenever, because there's nothing I could do about it. I had nobody to turn to. So if, like you said, if I had had somebody at home, oh, I more I would have. If I had somebody I could go to in the school systems or in adults that I could trust, I couldn't trust anybody. So I didn't go to them. So I was stuck in this dark world by myself. And it really, really messed with me. It, it produced such self-hate and hate in others and fear and distrust. And I had a lot of, a lot of pain to do, to go through. Um, so I think it was the control the others children for sure. And I, I also think, well, people are doing it to me, so I'm doing it to them. I wanted them to hurt as much as me Yep. as well. Yep. I want them to go through what I have to go through. And I, and there's not a time when I recall back on that, there's not a time that I always won, so to speak, in that area. And it, it pains me because I'm sure what I did to them affected them, even though we were both children. You know, there's no way it didn't. I'm sure that some of these kids that that happened with, they didn't have a life like me, you know? I'm sure that they weren't sexually molested and all those things, you know, and here, here we are all eight years old, nine years old doing things that normal kids just don't do, you know, um, that I was doing to them. Yeah. So, um, that right there caused a lot, uh, for me and it made me feel very, very nasty, very nasty. And I hate it very dirty. And for, for, for my whole life until I got some freedom, but, um, and it just, and it caused me to fall into relationships like that. So, um, I didn't take care of myself. I didn't, um, like, you know, when I entered into womanhood, so to speak, um, I hated myself even more. So I didn't try to look pretty or do anything to me. I didn't, I, I can remember just never, I never dressed nice. I didn't do my hair. I didn't, I just didn't care how I looked. Um, and I think a lot of that had to do with my self hate. And then I thought people would leave me alone, um, sexually and all those things. I didn't want, um, I know that eventually, you know, I, I got attracted to boys and all those things when I got older, but um, and I liked a few boys growing up, you know, but, um, I didn't experience the normal, um, high school deal. I, I, yeah, I went to the prom and I, I did those things as I got a little older, when I moved to, um, let's see, when I got into, um, seventh grade, I got kicked out of school already. So that my first reason why I got kicked out of school, and I think it was because this time it wasn't me. It was just because I missed so much school due to the abuse at home. So I had to redo the grade of seventh grade. And um, and my mom decided to put me in Catholic school out of town, out of town. So 
And during, during Catholic school, I really don't think my mom abused me too much. Um, my teachers seemed to be pretty legit. And I just, that those few years were okay. I was still drinking and, and cutting and, and all that. And I ended up going into high school in that town. It's up in Boston, Newburyport. So I went to, to that high school and my drinking got very, very bad. And I started, I've already started smoking marijuana and doing acid, doing cocaine. And I was, it was a freshman in high school at the time when, and, and it was a daily thing. You know, I drank before school. I drank during school. I, um, and all the other recreational drugs, not recreational. Let me restate that. It wasn't, rec- it, was, it wasn't the time, I guess. Um, but that, that would happen um, before that would happen during school as well. But um, I ended up punching a teacher um, when I was drunk at school and um, got kicked out of school. So my mother, we were moving to Tennessee at the time. So they sent me to a boarding school out in Tennessee and they were still living in Boston because they were going, we were moving to Tennessee. And I think maybe a month or so goes by and I got kicked out of school. I left, left boarding school, got drunk and, and I ran away and, um, they, they found me all the way, like, I guess, three hours away from the boarding school. And um, I got kicked out of there. So my family um, came ahead and moved to Tennessee. And remember, as we're talking here, you know, drugs and alcohol never left my life. That was a daily thing. That was a daily thing. And in, in high school, when I when they moved to Tennessee, I went to high school out there because I got kicked out of boarding school. So I went to regular public high school. Um, my mom really wasn't, she was getting older, you know, she was getting sicker. She had some health issues. And, um, so the abuse there, uh, physically didn't and sexually was now gone by this time. You know, it was more of an emotional abuse. Um, I was very fearful of my mom. My relationship with my dad really wasn't, it was neither here nor there. And that's just because he was never home and he didn't really know of the abuse. So I thought, you know, and I gave up on him a long time ago. You know, he never did anything about anything and um, you can depend on him to work and that's about it. And, you know, my mother was in my life every day because she was abusing me every single day. So as sick as it was, we had a relationship because we had to, because we're together every single day because she's, she's abusing me. So we have a close relationship because of that. Not a good one, but close. Yeah. So by this time, you know, it was more of an emotional deal, putting fear on me a whole lot, controlling me a whole lot controlling my father a whole lot. And, uh, there, I had met somebody at that time. I met a man when I was a boy, he had just, he had already graduated high school and I started dating him. And the only reason I started dating him is because his whole family did drugs. So I thought, yay, you know, I can skip school and go hang out over there and just stay high all the time. And, um, I ended up getting pregnant 
So, of course, you know, with the fear are really prevalent in my home, there was no way I was going to tell my mom that, you know. And as a young girl by myself, I, I didn't want it. You know, I didn't know what to do. You know, I was I, I just didn't know what to do at that time. And um, so I just let it ride. Like I thought maybe it'll just go away. <laughs> so I guess about five months goes by and you still really can't tell that I'm pregnant yet. You start getting this. I started to get a little little belly. And my mother had found out because I did go to the school um uh, what do you call that? A counselor, school counselor out there? Yeah, guidance counselor. Yeah, guidance counselor. So I went out there and he ended up telling my mom, you know, I guess because it's kind of like something that they're they they have to do. So she had found out and her and my dad approached me about that. And I guess that was probably the first thing that I my father got involved in was that and my mother stated at that time that I'm getting an abortion. And by this time, five months, I thought in my head, I'm going to keep this child. I really did. Now, at first, I didn't want the child. I didn't know what to do. There was no way I could see this through. But I also didn't think that, number one, I didn't have the money to get an abortion at that young age. And I didn't know how to get it done. And so I didn't have any information or of a know-how to start that process. So eventually I ended up wanting the child and I thought I'll just run away and um, keep the baby, stay with him, stay with his family. That was what was going on in my mind. Well, my mother um, and at that time, I didn't know what love was, but I thought I was in love, you know, Um, and um, she she said, I'm getting an abortion. Um, If you don't, I'm pressing charges on him because he's over 18 and he will go to jail. And um, she just put the fear in me. And so I I went to go get an abortion with her and we went to um, Kentucky. She apparently knew somebody that would do an abortion so late in pregnancy. And uh, we went out there and I, I, at that time, I don't have a lot of memory at that time. Yes, I did drugs. I smoked marijuana. Um, I drank all those things. But I still feel like to this day that my mother might have drugged me during that time because I couldn't function. I don't have barely any memory of it. And I remember not being able to walk. And my speech was not my speech was slurred. And so we went and had the abortion. And my, my memory of that was horrific. Like almost as if the doctor didn't know I was almost six months pregnant getting an abortion. And I have this picture in my mind that it freaked him out. And so I just, and then after that, after it happened, um, I was devastated. Um, know for sure that I couldn't walk. I couldn't really speak good. And, um, I really believe that I was drugged by my mom after that happened, um, my mom sat me down and told me that she's disowning me, that she's done. And my mother had a lot of connections. Like I'm very, very scared of my mom. Um, it seems like she knew she could always get everything done that she wanted done against anybody. Um, 
like she knew higher up people and can get these things done that nobody else could get done. And she really did. Very resourceful, but not in a positive way. Right, exactly. So when she made that clear, I knew, and she said I was never to ever contact her or anybody in the family, meaning uncles, aunts, cousins, it didn't matter. And so I went and stayed with my boyfriend at that time, the father of that child. I ended up getting married to him. Um, And soon as we got married, he ended up being extremely abusive. Um, So here I was again by myself, no one to turn to and being extremely abused by him. Um, I know that his family ended up being abusive. Um, They knew that I was by myself and I couldn't turn, I didn't have anyone to turn to. So they took advantage of that. My husband had raped me several times, uh, raped me after I had a child and I got pregnant immediately. So they're only nine months apart. Um, I ended up having four beautiful children and the, the, the thing that my mind could do after that abortion that devastated me was I just put it in my mind that my first child I had was the one I was going to have to begin with. And that's what kept me sane in that area, because that was horrific in itself. What was it like to finally become a mother after going through the abortion? Um, That's where I experienced love for the first time. My children were my life. My ex-husband now, um, at the time, he... um, He never worked. And that was part of the abuse that was against me. I mean, he was physically abusive, sexually abusive, which I know people look at and say like, well, how could he sexually abuse you? You were married. Um, But it's 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 a real thing. You know, when you're married and you don't want to have sex and he rapes you and ties you up and all those things. Um, I mean, he tied me up for like three days, sodomizing me. So, yeah, your husband can rape you. He um, didn't work. He didn't do anything. So my kids were my life. I can look back now and see how God's hand was in every step that I went through and gave me a job where I could bring my kids to work with me, which was daycare, uh, teaching, things like that. And that's where God used those children to show me love. Because I wasn't, I have never received love my whole life. And um, I didn't know how to receive love. I didn't know what love was. I didn't know how to love anybody correctly. And for me at that time, that was where I found love from another human being. It was unconditional love that came from them. And And in the situation that I was in, yes, I was still on drugs and alcohol. Um, He was abusing me. The family was abusing me. I did the best I could with what I had to, what I had to work with, you know, Um, they could have had a much better life. That's for sure. But I loved them the best I could. And I did the best I could. So years go by where I'm stuck in this abuse. Um, You don't. When I was in this marriage, I didn't know of, 
you know, because when you have somebody that is over everything you do and threatens your life and he has a family that's behind him on this, they support his abuse. They supported it. So I didn't have a way to get out of there. I felt like there was no way out and that if I did leave, he'd kill me because that's what he said he'd do. So finally, uh, when I was at the age, let's see, it was 2004, when May of 2004, one of those dates that I can remember forever, I, um, I left, I, right before that, actually, let me step back a little bit. I ended up calling my mother and I thought, well, you know what? She's either going to say yes or no. So I needed her help. And how long had it been since you had talked to her? 15 years. Wow. 15 years. So I was in this marriage for 15 years like this. And um, the only way I could use the phone and him not know was from work, you know. So I called her from work and I told her what was going on and I needed her help. And she said, yes, she said that she'll get me out of that. So. We actually had a very plan. We had a plan in order to get out. Like when they were in school, I was going to pick them up from school early and be gone. And he wouldn't even know where I'm at because my parents had a lot of money. And I knew my mom um, could get things done, you know. So I knew that I could disappear with the kids. Um, So, but what happened is. It was on a Friday night and he was beating me so bad that I knew if I stayed, I, I'd, he'd kill me. So I had, I could only get two kids out that night and I had to leave two behind. And, um, I went into a safe house that I didn't know that those were available for women, that there are safe houses out there that will help women get out of abusive relationships. So that saved me. I went into a safe house. I filed for divorce five days later, and I started to get extremely sick from withdrawals from drugs. So, um, I went into a rehab and my mother took the two children that I had at the time, um, with me at that time. Um, they've never met her. They didn't even know she existed. And she took them in. I went into rehab They got me a house, they got me a car, and they set up private security around me for about a year. Wow. So that was the first time I got clean and sober ever since the age of nine for three months. Three months only because I relapsed. But here's the thing, Terry. When I got back around my parents, Now, I understand I'm going to go through some PTSD from my marriage, um, from the abuse from my marriage. But when I got around them, it was far beyond PTSD from my marriage. I was psychotic. Like, I started cutting. I hadn't done that since I was a kid. I had this control. My mother controlled everything I said and did and breathed and saw. And I was just this, I, I, it's like I I stepped back into a realm of darkness and just, I couldn't, but I didn't know why I didn't know why I was a, I mean, 
from yeah from the normal memories i have yeah that's to be expected but this was far far beyond that and the only thing i knew to do was to start use again so that's what i did um i still hadn't heard knew of the of god yet so my coping me- mechanism that it, i used my whole life i grabbed back up so i lost everything that my mother had gotten me um, my house, my car, and all those things. And I ended up homeless. And um, a lot had happened between in those few years. Like I got broke into and was raped, um, press charges on him. Um, just from the from the drugs and the alcohol that I was using, I had a lifestyle of in self-destruction. It's like nobody was abusing me anymore. So I was abusing myself and I was doing all these things that were so self-destructive along with cutting, along with using. And um, I was found on the side of the road, beaten from being raped on another occasion. Uh, I was in and out of mental institutions, detoxing, um, just in and out. And at one point I um, was in a mental institution slash rehab or detox. And I had already been in and I would say I was in and out of a couple of 30 day rehabs. And the reason why I was in a facility like that was because of, because of my cutting and because of the drug use. Yes. um, Also, the rapes, um, and all those things. I just got to a point of like, man, I need some help here. And, um, the woman that lived that worked there suggested that I go into a place called teen challenge and it's a faith-based 12 month recovery program. And I didn't know what she was talking about when she said faith-based, I had no idea. And, um, by this time, I knew who God was. I'm not, I wasn't stupid. I figured out who he was. I just didn't know who he was. How did you figure out who God was? Well, um, but see, Terry, here's the thing. My, how I saw him was very distorted. I thought God was against me. Okay. So he was trying to do things to me to take me out of this world. Okay. And In my twisted way of thinking, I thought, okay, I'm a mistake because I was always told I was a mistake. I was always told I was stupid and just um, ugly and ignorant and a waste of time and all those really bad negative things about myself. Um, Not only were they told to me, but they were also put in action towards me. And so my whole life, I've never experienced uh, anything but some type of abuse. And I'm like, what? Why? Why? Why me? And I thought God was doing that to me. And he didn't want me here. And he didn't want me alive. And so I thought, well, I'm going to prove you wrong. I'm going to make it. You're not going to win. So that's how I saw God. And I hated him because I thought he was against me. He was trying, he was doing all these things to me. Sure. And, um, that's all I knew. So when she mentioned that a preacher was going to come into my room 
I said, no, there's do not do that. No, I was like really against that. Like I, I had a lot of anger. I had a lot of anger and fear engulfed me. And um, when he came into my room, he ended up doing it anyway. And I got very, very angry. And this is a teen challenge. Did, no, this is in the, um, this is in that uh, detox slash institution. Okay. Gotcha. Uh, she suggested it to me. And I said, I didn't know what that was. And so she was sending a preacher in to explain that to me. And I said, no. And she sent him in anyway. So when she did, I got extremely angry and just started cussing and yelling and screaming and told him to get out of my room and blah, blah, blah. And his name, uh, his name is Pastor Coffee, which is an amazing man of God. And at that time, he he talked, he didn't leave. And he told me about this facility. And the only reason that I was even open to it is because it was free. So I said, all right. So I got on the plane and went into this Teen Challenge facility in Texas. And this was back in 2007. Well, um, I couldn't, my body even was so against it. Like I hated it. I could not, I was like, there is no way I am staying here at this place when it's about God. It made me physically ill to be there, honestly. And I'm like, looking back, I'm like, it makes sense. But at that time, um, all I knew is I had to get out of there. And at that time, what had happened is there was a, an intern that worked there and she started to um, show an interest in me in like a homosexual relationship. So I had never been with a girl before in my life and never even thought about that. Now, as a child, those are some of the things that I did as a child to other children, but I was not in any way homosexual. But next thing you knew, I ended up leaving with this girl and starting a homosexual relationship. So I was in that teen challenge for maybe a month, month and a half, something like that. What do you think it was about her that caused you to to enter into that uh, homosexual relationship, to to leave rehab, to just do this thing that you've never done before? Well. I can see what it is now, but what I thought it was then was the fact that after what men have done to me my whole life and the fact that she was showing me a type of, um, int- well, let me look, she was showing me a type of attention and a type of love that I've never experienced before. And I had such a hatred towards men and I thought, well, I'll give it a try. That's honestly what I went went through my mind is I like that type of attention from her. And I thought I'll give it a try. Sure. And I didn't want to be there. So that's what the reason why that happened for me. Looking back now, I know it was a tactic of the enemy yeah. getting me out of there. Um, he, he was doing everything he could to derail me and kill me. And that was part of it. So. When I got there, I ended up leaving there and going to Louisiana because that's where she was from. 
And that's where her family's from. And not only did I get with a woman, but I got with a girl that was only 20 at the time and ended up turning 21. So I stayed there in Louisiana Um, during that time. That was probably the darkest place I have been when it comes to drugs and alcohol and the sexual things that I went through there. Um, There's just something very demonic about homosexuality behavior mixed with drugs and alcohol. It brings you into a type of darkness that, um, that I have never experienced. And it almost killed me. I, um, I did things sexually that I had never done before. Um, I was doing drugs and alcohol, not so much alcohol, but drugs. I was started doing intravenous drugs. I was starting to do meth. I started to um, have orgies and shows and um, prostituting myself out. Um, All these things because it was part of the homosexual uh, lifestyle and the drugs mixed together started in my life that I had never done before. that's a type of darkness that I didn't know existed when it came to that. So that I, I was homeless a lot with her. Um, uh, I ended up starting to be a dealer as well in Louisiana. So I was IV using meth and selling it at the same time. Um, I was mixing every drug together. I was, it was just very, very, very dark. Um, but in my mind, I wanted those things towards me. I hated me. Um, I was trying to commit suicide by doing those things on purpose. I was doing those things on purpose so that I finally got to a point where I didn't want to survive anymore. I didn't want to be that survivor and God, I'll show you, I'm going to make it. By this time I wanted to die. I wanted to kill myself by the lifestyle I was leading. That was my goal. I was just done. And um, as time went by, you know, I'm probably, I might've talked to my parents a couple of times during that time. Um, And of course it was to manipulate for money, you know, Um, and they would send me a little money, whatever. And then finally they got me a car thinking that I would come back to Tennessee and be a part of their lives. Um, cause they're getting old, you know, and they're, they're both sick. And I think that, I think they wanted me to help them, you know? And did they have a custody of the two children that you brought from that marriage? Let me go back a little bit. Cause this is a big part of my testimony, um, for, to show what God had done in this area. Um, during the time before I went to the teen challenge, during those two year period, the two that I had with me. Okay. So I had two that I had to leave behind after years and years of trying or not years and years, but thousands of dollars trying to get those two to get with me never did happen. So I had the two with me. Um, I ended up losing them to foster care. And for some reason, apparently I still have some things I need to go through with the Lord on that because Um, you know, when we go through the healing process with the Lord and self-forgiveness and all, there's always going to be layers, you know, and I, 
I'm having a really hard time with that the last few weeks. Yeah. And I know nobody wakes up wanting to be in the state of mind where you lose your children. Nobody wants that. And that for a mother is so devastating. And you can never, you can never say sorry enough. And it's just. <laughs> so, um, because of the lifestyle that I was in with drugs and alcohol and um, the rapes and just the environment that I was putting my children in, I lost them to foster care. Um, The environment that the other two were in um, wasn't healthy and the state saw that even though they allowed two of them to be there. It was such a mess, such a mess, but I lost those two to foster care and eventually he ended up getting custody of all four because I just couldn't, I couldn't get it together. I just kept getting worse and worse. So when I went to, um, food teen challenge and then left and I just, because I didn't have the two and he had custody of all four, I just left and went to Louisiana and I couldn't handle, um, I mean, it's like I could handle what I did to myself, but I couldn't handle what I did to my kids. And that's the reason why I just I went to Louisiana with a girl and got myself in these and did what I was doing because I was so. I felt so guilty and so bad about me, and I never thought I didn't see that it would get fixed. So there wasn't a point anymore in my life because that's the only thing I loved were them. And I kept choosing drugs over them and I couldn't get it together. So, and I, I just, there wasn't any help. I couldn't get, I didn't have anybody. I didn't know God yet. So. And I was so angry at God. It's it's like, because I was so alone my whole life and so abused my whole life. But I couldn't understand why. And the only thing that made sense was that I wasn't supposed to be here to begin with. So I was figuring, I figured I'll control how I did how I hurt myself. I'm going to do it to myself. I'm not going to let anybody else do it to me anymore. I'll just do it and I can control it. Sure. So I never cried ever. So anything that was exhibited was anger. And I got myself into a lot of trouble over the anger and um, in jail and stuff for aggravated assaults and things like that just 
so my whole soul de- reason for Louisiana and I didn't want to leave it was because I just wanted to die in it. I had no reason to live to me. I just didn't. I was tired of what was done to me and what I'm doing. And I just, so Louisiana was pretty bad. And during that time of meth use and dealing meth, um, I had probably been up a couple of weeks. I'm probably exaggerating, but it was a good minute, at least a week. And I, um, and I was just, I passed out. My body just, just crashed. And uh, I don't know how long I was asleep, but I woke up in the middle of nowhere and said, I got to go. And I got in my car and I drove. And that's all I did. And as I'm driving, God started to show himself to me as I'm driving. I don't know what happened. But as I entered into the state of Tennessee and I thought I I was driving, I thought I thought I was going to my mom and dad's because they wanted me to come home and they got me the car to come home. So. I'm going through and I'm going over the hill into Chattanooga, the mountains. And this rainbow comes down and it hits down inside of my car. And my whole car is just lit up and I'm lit up. And just something started to happen at that moment. And I started to think about God because, you know, during the time in Tennessee, the girl that I was with at that time, her grandmother was a Christian and she would throw me, she, she would, she loves me a lot. I will say that she loves me a lot. And apparently God had showed her me and um, she mentioned God a few times and tried to get me to listen to her. And I really didn't want to hear it, but that gave me kind of the start of God. Like she would tell me I need to repent (laughs) and um, turn from him and um, that he loves me and just little things like that here and there, because I really didn't want to hear it. And I knew she knew that, but I, the love that she had from, for me was God, you know, because I was with her granddaughter and she really, should have hated me and she didn't. And so I just kind of saw what a Christian does, so to speak. And when I got into Tennessee and that happened and God kind of touched me, it kind of touched me to start opening my mind a little bit. I think just started to make me think about him, I suppose. And not in a way that was him trying to kill me you know it was more like just I don't know how to explain it in words just kind of opening my mind I guess yeah it sounds like softening your heart too yeah yeah there you go so I drive to my parents house and they didn't want me there which I I still don't know what the heck happened you know because that's why you know they wanted me to come there so I ended up 
with no money, nowhere to go, living in my car a couple of miles away from their house because they didn't want me home. But that was my mom's MO. You know, she did things like that all the time. So I never thought anything of it. I, I What I thought was, man, I should have known better. But at least I'm out of Tennessee, right? So the person that I knew before I went to Louisiana, when I was in those two years, I knew of a girl that had pain pills and stuff like that and sold crack. And I never did crack, but I did it a couple of times, but I didn't really like it. But I knew her. So I told her what had happened and she let me stay with her. So I ended up living with her while she's dealing crack out of her house and drugs are coming in and out. So I get a job and um, I'm just staying high again all the time because there's drugs around me all the time. I'm living in a dealer's house. So I'm pretty bad off. Like, you know, um, I'm, I'm, I'm just like really bad off. And uh, I'm working at a uh, restaurant serving. I was serving. And um, this woman comes in and she walks straight up to me. I don't, this, is, this is, let me tell you. Okay. So I was withdrawing. I didn't have any opiates that day when I was at work and I was going to go home because I was so sick. And I thought, no, I'm just going to stick this day out so I can get some money serving and I can get more pills. That's what I thought. So instead of leaving that day, I stayed and this woman comes in and it was during our slow time. And she comes in and just walks straight up to me. And she said, the Lord told me to come in here and sit with you. And like you said, Terry, I guess the Lord, what happened was he softened my heart to be receptive of this woman coming in and say, saying, God told me to come sit with you because otherwise I wouldn't have heard that. So I sat down with her and she said, um, God asked me to pull in and sit with you and talk with you for a minute. And she said, I know this sounds crazy, but he's wanting me to ask you to live with me. So I just start crying. I'm just like, it's just really crying. And, um, I knew where I was. I didn't need to be there. This woman was like crazy. Her family was crazy. She was crazy. Drugs were all around me. I, I mean, my life was constantly on the edge here, you know, and I, and where her coming and then, then I needed her so bad. And I said, okay, I didn't care. Like, I just knew that I knew that I needed to live with her. That's the only words I can say. And I, um, I go back to the, to the house. I get my bag full of things and she's screaming at me, telling me I can't leave and all of this. I don't. And so I just kept getting my stuff and I got what I could get, get it in my car. And I start living with this lady. Well, this lady has a couple of kids and she's married. And I tell her, I tell her that I, I'm on opiates right now. And this, that, and the other. And she, she, she drives me to a rehab and, um, takes me like three hours away and drops me off at the rehab and then comes to visit me while I'm in this rehab even. And then, you know, buys all my stuff for me because I can't work and be in rehab. So this woman's taking care of all my needs. And 
I leave rehab. She, I, I get done with it. I'm good to go. I get to her house and I start using again. So I get a call. Now she doesn't know I'm using yet. So I get a call from my dad, which shocked me. I didn't think that that would ever happen. And so he calls and he said, Jennifer, I need you home. Your mom's not doing good. So I left, um, left her house and I started staying with my parents again. And during this time, my mom is really, really sick. Um, she has Alzheimer's. She's dying from diabetes and she's bedridden. And my dad wants me there to help take care of her because he has cancer and he's in and out of the hospital and she's in and out of the hospital. So I'm taking care of her while he's in the hospital and visiting him. And then he gets out of the hospital, then she has to go in. So that's what I'm doing for the next couple of months. But my mom's also on a lot of pain pills. So I'm taking every single one of her pain pills. I've probably taken $20,000 of their money to pay for more pain pills for myself while they're going through this. And I'm trying to take care of my mom. And my mom is just like bad. All she does is scream my name 24 hours a day. That's all she did. And at this time, I'm starting to figure out the Lord too, you know, because of what happened in, in the restaurant and where I'm staying and what God's been doing for me. And I start looking at a Bible for the first time in my life. And I'm so what the, 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 where I keep reading over and over and over is Psalm 63. And so what I'm doing I don't, now this isn't me. This is the Lord is he's I'm reading Psalm 63 to my mom over and over and over. Cause that's the only part that for some reason, Psalm 63. So, um, she passes away. My brothers come down, by the way, this is the first time I've seen my brother since I was 14 years old. Wow. Um, they come down and he sees that I'm taking all their money. So he kicks me out. So my mom passes away. My dad doesn't want a service or a funeral. He just cremates her, which I thought was really strange. So I'm like, that's really weird. But anyway, so. Before we get into the next piece here, Jennifer, let's, let's pause here. What was that like taking care of your mom and then going through mom's death? Obviously, as we've talked about, your relationship with her was very uh, abusive and volatile and toxic. So what was that like for you now as an adult to be the one taking care of her and then seeing her die? Um, I went through a stage with that. Um, at one point I sat there Well, she was, you know, cause she was bedridden. And one of the times right before she passed, she was in the hospital. And one day I sat there with her in the hospital and she was very incoherent. Like she didn't even, she does not know what's going on around her. Almost, you know, she's just laying there. So I let her have it. I got everything out that I needed to get out. Um, and I was, and I probably went on and on and on for hours, just letting it all out, letting her know what she has done to me. And what it had done, how it affected me 
and how wrong it was and how angry I was. And I just let her have it. And after it was all said and done, and I even told her that this is, she deserves what she's going through. But I took care of her anyway, because underneath it all, I had a really good heart. You know, I really did. Um, I didn't never try to purposely hurt anybody during this, my whole life. I've never, that I can recall purposely hurting anyone in that type of way, like devastating their lives. I mean, I did, of course, but not in that manner. Does that make sense? Yeah. Not intentionally. I had a heart. Um, and I, so I took care of her and because no matter what, Terry, no matter what your parents do to you, you still love them. There's just because they're your parents. Yeah. Um, so that, I mean, even then that made me feel bad about myself because I'm like, why am I doing all this? And why do I still love them after what they've done to me? And I took that as there's, of course, I made it about me and that I'm not a good person because of that, or I'm a wimp or I'm a whatever, because I'm doing that. But, and so I had some guilt just by, just because I was being nice, but I did go through that one day and I let her have it all out and I got it out. Um, And shortly after that, she passed and I really didn't get sad over it. Um, I, they had a service, but my dad wouldn't let anyone do any prayer and he cremated her. So, um, and it was very like a 30 minute and there was probably maybe seven people there. So it wasn't like she was well loved, you know? So I didn't, I didn't cry or anything like that. I wasn't sad. I just knew that there was a loss and, um, I was high anyway, really. So after that had happened, after my mom passed and my brother kicked me out, um, it was like a day after her funeral. My dad was in the hospital and uh, due to cancer and um, they, he kicked me out while, while that happened. So I went back to that lady's house that took me in and I let her know I was still using because I was really, really bad. I taken a lot of money and applied that and plus all my mother's pills. And, uh, I knew I needed help pretty bad. So I had, I had been there probably about a month or so. And, um, I finally got to a point in my life where I was completely done with getting high. Like I, I knew that um because even during pregnancy i either drank or smoked weed so it's like since the age of nine i've not had but maybe three months clean time until the age of how old was i um so this by this time it's the year 2013 fixing a hit into so it was december 2000 my mom had just died she had been dead maybe about a month or so ish so i was just um and i know my dad was sick he had cancer and i just was done terry like i but i also knew i couldn't stop so it was like i was on my knees and i can remember this so vividly 
And the only reason I was on my knees is so that I could get high. So like I was on my knees for that purpose, but I was on my knees. So, and I was crying. I was just so, I was hysterically crying because I was so tired of getting high and I couldn't stop. And I hated it. Like I hated the whole thing. I hated doing it. I hated trying to find it. I hated uh, the hot. I hate I wasn't getting high, basically. Really, I was just trying not to get sick. I was just doing it so I wouldn't get sick. And I couldn't stop because I wouldn't stop getting sick. And then if I went through a detox, I went straight back doing it again. I couldn't stop. And I was on my knees and I said, God, if you're real, if you're real, I need your help. I can't do this. I can't stop. I can't. And I can't do this on my own. So if you're real, you're going to have to do this for me because I can't do this on my own. I can't stop. And during that time, I'm just hysterical and I didn't know what else to do. And I didn't actually think that he would do anything. But I said it anyway. And out of nowhere, that name, Pastor Coffee, the one that got me into Teen Challenge years ago, came to my mind. And then I said, then I thought, wait a second, Pastor Coffee lives in the same town that I'm in. And then I thought, how am I going to find his number? And so I thought I would call the teen challenge that he got me in a long time ago and see if they know who he was and I can get his number. And sure enough, they gave me his phone number. And all this happened within a few minutes. And I called him. And when I did, I said, Pastor Coffee, this is Jennifer. And back then, my name was Scarborough. And I said, this is Jennifer Scarborough. And he said, I've been waiting for you to call. Wow. So it was like eight years, seven years. And he's been waiting for me. And he knew who I was. And he said, are you ready? And I said, yeah. And about four or five days later, I get into Teen Challenge in, in Texas, in Pasadena. And that's when things started happening in my life. Um, this is where it gets really good. Yeah. I don't know how he did it. I don't know how God does this. So um, when I get into Teen Challenge, I was a mess, just a mess. I had a lot of anger and a lot of guilt and a lot of shame and a lot of self-hatred and I hated people so bad and I mean Terry it, it was bad and I was a very hard case like I had severe behavioral issues like I always like I just I couldn't 
like I broke every rule every day. And I just was a, a really extreme hard case. And the director there at the time really just didn't give up on me. And it just, this blows me away here. Um, I got saved while I was there. Um, I still really didn't understand, like, you, I never knew God. I don't know the Bible. I don't know Jesus. I don't know anything about anything. And so really being saved was just being willing, I think. And for me at that time, and Miss Treve is just, that's her name. She's the director. She was the director over there at the time. And she just kept on and kept on and wouldn't give up on me. And um, eventually, like about eight months after that, I got filled by the Holy Spirit. And <laughs> I'm learning what that is. I remember speaking in tongues for hours. And and then after that, we start this class. It's like this uh, counseling class that you um, you start a process of healing in. And during one of those sessions, we're in a group setting. Um, I went through what you call kind of like a deliverance, so to speak. And um, when I first went through a deliverance, um, and I didn't understand what was happening to me at that time. And, um, but I manifested, I know what it is now, so I can explain it. All right. But I didn't know at that time what any of this was. Um, I manifested. So let me step back a little bit. Um, I don't think I was, I was not filled with the Holy Spirit yet. So I went through a deliverance. I got saved and went through a deliverance. Um, and during this deliverance, I manifested and um, it's, come to find out, um, I was possessed. And so I was going through that, uh, deliverance probably eight hours or so. I mean, I was exhausted. I was wow. throwing up, I was coughing up stuff. I was, uh, flowing around, flopping around and going through the whole deliverance process of that. Um, after that, um, extensive deliverance session, um, a month later in September, I got filled with the Holy spirit. That's when I spoke in tongues for hours. And I was just, everything changed for me after that. That is when I started to, I could start reading the word that was, I mean, being in teen challenge for almost a year by then, you know, um, and I'm just now opening up the Bible because during that whole year so far, excuse me, about 10 months, they're dealing with me and my behavioral issues, you know? Um, then I get, go through the deliverance and then I get filled with the Holy spirit. Then I start reading God's word. And, um, it was second Samuel 22. I remember this moment I was sitting on the floor by myself in a room and I op opened up the Bible and I, when I read second Samuel 22, that's that moment for me. That's when I realized who God is, who I am and how much he loves me all in one chapter. That was what that for me. So after that, 
I can, I went into those counseling classes and it's a group setting. And, um, the first time we went in is when the Holy spirit did this. Okay. So this is how my walk and my testimony is for me. Um, the Holy spirit brought a re- what I call a revelation, a remembrance that I needed to know. And it made sense that now my life from the time I was born up to that moment makes sense now from this revelation. And it was so, such a huge revelation. Well, the revelation brought me into shock. So what happened was, is I came, is started with a memory that God wanted me to remember. Okay. And the purpose in that, and I've learned this as my walk with Jesus for me is he shows things in order for you to get rid of. Yeah. Right. And he shows me what I need to know, what not, what I want to know. Um, and I learned that too. Um, because a lot of times when God shows you something, you want to know why, where, who, and all those things. And God showed me, I don't have to have all the answers. I just need to know this. And in order to let things go in my life to make more room for Jesus. So he showed me that my, what I, the family that I was born into, my father and my mother were satanic worshipers. They they, we had a church, a satanic church that we went to. Okay. Now from being a part of that, now a satanic church just isn't coming together and using a Ouija board or just, you know, because nowadays they try to make it like a fad. Yeah. You're opening the door for the enemy with that, but that's not this is serious. This is a hidden church that comes together, hidden. Nobody knows about it. And it's met at a, in a building. It's the satanic church. They serve the kingdom of darkness. They have rituals there. They cast, they, their sole purpose is worshiping the devil as, okay. So how we go to church as Christians is how they go to church for Satan. Their God is Satan. That So they have um, services on that. They have rituals on that. Um, and it's usually people that are higher up. Like my father was a nuclear physicist. It, it was the people that he knew. And it's usually, um, this is real. Okay. So these are like government officials, principals of schools. Um, I'm just naming. I'm not saying that they all are. I'm just naming like higher type professions that hold ground to be able to serve the kingdom of darkness in a way that is higher up than just somebody working a lower class job. Does that make sense? Yeah. It's people of uh, maybe more influence. Yes. Yes. So what the Lord, how this happened was my first revelation was um, where San Diego, I go back to when I lived in California when I was a child. That was my first one. And my first memory was seeing myself walking home from school by myself 
because I was always by myself. So I was walking home and I remember the sand. And so I had flip flops on and I remember wearing a dress and I remember putting my foot in the sand as I'm walking where the street is. And because there's sand everywhere, even around like the streets, there's sand and stuff. And that, and then next thing I know, I remember it was started with that. And it went to me being in the car with my mom driving into this parking lot that had sand it throughout, like on and off the kind of through the parking lot. And I saw the building and my mother's words were, don't you dare tell anybody that we're here. So I pull up and the, 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 the building is made of almost like the outside of the building was metal. It went down. There were doors just like a church. So we get out of the car and we go in. This is my first revelation. We go in. There's like this water cooler like type area. Um, there's other children my age. I have to go sit with them. And then I remember um, always manipulating the other kids so that I didn't have to go first. But then I knew what if I go first, I can get it over with. Um, And then I remember this hallway that goes down. And as you go down this little, like little, uh, not steps, but a little ramp type deal, it goes down lower. And, um, I remember going into this room that's all dark and, uh, drinking blood. So, and then I see myself as a child screaming and then I went into shock. And that was the first revelation that I had because I knew what was happening in this memory and, my body went into shock. So, um, and of course, Ms. Treva didn't know like what was happening at this time. Um, so she just helps me and takes care of me for the now to get my body, get to me back, get me back. Cause I went into shock and, um, she, um, took me aside afterwards and we start talking a little bit. And um, start to realize that that was my childhood. Um, and but see, God knew what He was doing, and His timing is so perfect because Miss Treva um, used to help women come out of satanic churches that were almost like breeders, you know, because women get pregnant just to have babies that they sacrifice at these uh, rituals. Oh my gosh. She used to help women come out of it and keep them in a safe house. And God brought me somewhere to somebody that used to help women get out of it. What are the odds? He's in the details. Right. So she understood exactly and knowing that these things are real, because for me, um, because that's not the first revelation. I mean, God kept giving, the Holy Spirit kept giving these revelations that would come. I would go into shock, but then we would know um, what to do, you know, and what, what, okay, what do we have to renounce? What do we have to go through? What do we have to um, get rid of? And 
not just that, but to also help me spiritually, but also emotionally, physically, um, all those things. Because when you go into, um, after these years of going through deliverance and stuff, there's certain things that I have learned because number one, Terry, I never knew anything of the demonic side. I never knew. Um, I don't know about rituals. I don't know about a satanic church. I've never thought those things my whole life. Yeah. So I knew it wasn't me coming up with these ideas. Um, they weren't just thoughts or ideas that I thought of and made up. But the enemy likes to make you think that you're crazy and that you made it up. Mm-hmm. And that's not the case. So we went through that for a little bit. But then things we got to see that I had been at Teen Challenge for a year and a half. And I really haven't gotten anywhere. And Miss Treva has a lot of other students to deal with. This place is like holds 30 to 50 women, you know, so we had come to a mutual agreement to move me. Okay. So I moved from teen challenge to new creation foundation. And that is, um, a little outside of Tyler. It's about three hours away. And the founders of this program, Miss Lisa and pastor Greg Fleck, there's something that I, I find that I think is important that be said though, because I want people to know the enemy is real. Okay. But I also in saying the things that I'm fixing to say to realize that our God is bigger. The cross has the final word. The the enemy is real. Yes. But our God is bigger and has the power and the authority and the victory. Okay. So when we were going through the deliverance process a little bit over there at teen challenge, Miss Treva got, extremely sick she got a pancreatitis and ended up in the hospital and that i um and almost died okay while she was trying to work with me so she that's why um one of the reasons why i had to leave in the enemy i almost forgot that so i think it's important that it be said because there's a reason why i'm telling you this um so she was too sick to continue my care and the fact that Teen Challenge could only do so much, you know? Sure. So I transferred into this program, okay? So about a month goes by and I'm in here and I wasn't even going to tell anybody about what went on in my life or anything like that because it kept putting me into shock and I didn't want to go through that anymore. I Let's just forget it ever happened. But during this time, I'm extremely tormented by demonic spirits. Okay. I see a lot. I I'm, I'm just completely tormented. So while I'm here in this place, I'm extremely tormented. And, um, I eventually, I came up with a decision that I had to turn in a request form to see pastor Greg and Miss Lisa for counsel. And, um, as soon as I wrote that out, The enemy attacked Pastor Greg and he got pancreatitis and ended up in the hospital and almost died. So in that right there, um, when Pastor Greg and Miss Lisa decided that they were going to walk me through deliverance here and um, they they uh, testify about that incident because they want people to know as well that the enemy is real. You know, um, 
everything in me, I know that the enemy attacked Ms. Treva and that the enemy attacked Pastor Greg. And he will do whatever he can in order for this type of darkness not to come out because it needs to come out. Yes. Um, It needs to come out and people need to know what God does in his glory to be shown in this. Um, So during these times um, of going through, when I got here to New Creation Foundation, uh, Pastor Greg and Miss Lisa, they both walked me through deliverance once a week for nine months, nine months. Okay. So some of the things that I remember as a child that the Holy Spirit showed me. And to this day, I never, ever look up anything about the kingdom of darkness whatsoever, because I don't want number one, why there's no reason to And then for me, it helps me know, okay, so what I know is what is real. I'm not adding anything to what the Holy Spirit has allowed to come to me. I'm not adding to it. I'm not distorting it. So what is shown to me is exactly what is shown to me. And I don't want anything to get in the way of that. And so, um, and it helps me know that it's real. And it helps me know I'm not crazy and I'm not making it up. Um, so as a child, they, at this church, I played a part, um, in rituals, like, um, they used, uh, me as in, in sexual things that they had done to me, what they had me do to other kids, um, what, um, sacrifices that we have done during these rituals and, the thing is, is I don't have all the answers. I don't know who they were and who did this and who didn't and all those things. But I don't have to know. And God showed me that. And it takes off a whole lot of relief off of us if we just let, if we know we don't have to know all the answers. Because I know there are people out there that want to know all the answers. Well, why did they and who did it? And really, you don't have to. Um, It's about me getting freedom from that. And, and not just me getting freedom, but me helping other people that have been in the same circumstance as me. Um, Because is this a lot more common than people think, Jennifer, as far as people that grow up experiencing um, SRA, satanic ritual abuse. Is this more common than maybe people think? I used to think it's not common at all. Okay. Because, um, but see the enemy wants me to think I'm all by myself. He's done that my whole life. So as I'm going through the process of getting freed and delivered from this, because I, I would think I'm the only one, you know, but God has introduced, put a couple of people in my path that have been through it um, to help me personally know that I'm not alone, um, to help me know that I'm not crazy. Those two things right there. um, And it also makes it more freeing to be able to step into boldness and confidence to tell your testimony on this, to know that you're not alone, that it is more common than you think. Yeah. 
And why would God have me do my testimony about it if there aren't other people that need to know that they can get free? Amen. So that right there tells me that it's common enough. It's just so hidden. Nobody wants to bring it out. Um, Do you think so, for instance, because it's such a serious deal? Yeah. I mean, I know that children were used in these sacrifices. I know that babies were. So. I'm not here to try to prove who did it and that it actually happened so that we can prosecute and go through all those lines. That's not what it's about. Um, For me and my walk, there may be somebody else out there that can hear this and get the boldness and confidence to do that. But in my circumstance, I don't have the answers to all of that. Do I know they happen? Yeah, I do. I do. Um, And it does happen. And it is more common than we think. I know that um, God has showed me people along my way that know that it's real, that know that it happens. I know that it has, they, when you do, when these things are going on for children, okay, praise God I got out of it. But the deal is, is they, I don't know if the term would be brainwashed. But I know that they do certain things in these meetings and these rituals and these uh, services that they have to block a child immediately because until they hear or see or smell a certain thing, there's going to be either a word or a sentence or something that they have to say in order to ignite that child back up to do what you want it to do. Because if they don't, Children will be running, like for me, if they didn't do that with me, I would be going to school, just talking all about it and all that. Because I'm a young kid. I wouldn't know not to. Yeah, it's like they're programming you. Yes, programming. And see, everything that I know is only because the Holy Spirit showed it to me. It has nothing to do with me looking anything up or trying to figure things out, which helps me know that it's real. Right. And I think just the human brain and the human body's natural tendency when we go through trauma like that is to block it. Right. Right. And you you did such a good job. Your body and your brain did such a good job of blocking that throughout your life. And I'm sure other traumas as well that it it had to have taken God to reveal this to you. Exactly. Exactly. And he put me he he did it just perfectly. He he waited. I had to. uh First, I was clean and sober, and then he put me in a place where somebody understood exactly what was happening, you know, and then he did it a layer at a time. I, I, I couldn't handle it all at once. There's no way, because honestly, Terry, with the things that I should be in an institution somewhere, honestly, with the, what I have been through in my life, what I participated in as a child, I should be in an institution, not being very coherent, not being able to be who I am today. I mean, God totally freed me and, and delivered me and, and not protected me my whole life. I protected me my whole life as, as, Messed up as my life has been, he still had his hand in everything because I would not be where I'm at today. I have my minister's license. Um, 
I work in a facility. Um, I work for New Creation Foundation. I'm able to help save lives every day. Um, I'm a women's program coordinator at a at a at a women's faith-based recovery program. I preach the word. I walk the word. I I deliver people from their darkness. He's gifted me with giftings that that could have been used for the kingdom of darkness, but has twisted over and given me giftings where I, I'm a seer. I can see. Um, he's given me the the discerning of the spirits. He's given me. He's. I mean, and now I all that can be used for his kingdom. Yeah. And, and in all this, and when I tell you, the enemy had a plan before I was born. Um, it came out during my deliverances that my parents. The only reason why they had me conceived to begin with was to use me and train me up as a high priestess for the kingdom of darkness. But that didn't happen. Wow. That didn't happen. So God's hand was in it from the beginning. So now I'm used in a major way for the Lord right now. Yeah. Um, He put me in a place where Miss Lisa and Pastor Greg had the, the, I know it was God through them, but still, you know, they were faithful and consistent and sought through week by week for nine months and then connected me with some people in Texas that continued my deliverance process with them. Um, And I got to meet a couple of people that have had this and that came out of this when they were kids, they had been through the same thing. So, and I know this level of darkness that is being brought to light right now, there's cause it's causing a whole shift in the realm. I know it is. And, but our God is bigger. Our God is victorious. And what he did in me, I mean, I, I cry every day and for good though. I cry because. I love him so much for, I love him so much, Terry. It's like he, what he freed me from. And I, I mean, I, we know the word transforms us. I get that. I know that, but how it just blows me away. How did he do it? How did he deliver me from that? How did he make me who I am. How did he do that? You know, and by the, by showing me what happened, what my family was and all that, that was actually a relief because now it all made sense. My life made sense. It made sense why my life was the way it was. And then, then there's God and how he got me here. And then what he's done in me. Um, you can't even recognize me from before. Like that person is so foreign and so far away. I can't, it just, if you see a picture of me, it would, it doesn't even look like me. It looks, it, it doesn't even look like me anymore. Your new creation. Oh, for sure. <laughs> How cool is it, Jennifer, that you got deliverance at this facility and now 
full circle, you are now working at that same facility, bringing deliverance and bringing healing through Jesus Christ to other people. Like only God, right? Like God God is the best author in the history of of existence, right? Obviously he created everything, but like when we allow God, I tell people this all the time, when we allow God to take the pen, to keep the pen in his hand to write our story instead of trying to yank it out of his hand and write our own story, man, nothing compares to the stories that God has written for us. And like you said, I mean, to go through everything that you've been through, Jennifer, you've been through um, so much trauma, sexual trauma, uh, satanic ritual abuse trauma. You said that you, you'd have to drink human blood. I think, you know, in a previous conversation we had, you said you'd have to, dr- you'd have to eat you know, human flesh is part of these rituals and, and yeah. all this trauma and, and the abuse and, and the divorces and, and the, and the kids and the drugs and the confusion of your identity, everything that you've been through and look where God has brought you. He has delivered you. He has made you a new creation. He is using you and your story to bless others and to set the captives yeah. free. And you're also married now. Yes, I was just fixing to say that. So not only has he done all that, right? He's restoring the relationship with my children, okay? And he's made me healthy enough to bring me the most wonderful, amazing man of God that is that is out there. It's like whatever the enemy stole and took away, he has blessed back. So if you think about all that trauma, all the abuse that I've gotten from men and all the life that I've had, all of that, and you want to make it and you want to make it the opposite, that's Bobby. That's my husband. God, that is the biggest blessing that the Lord could have ever given me is Bobby. He, he is the most amazing man. And so and it's there's proof in that because only God's going to give you something. I try to equal out from the pain. Does that make sense? So you got so much pain and mine's had a lot. So he's going to give me a man that goes way above that pain, way even above that level. So it's, it's, you got to know that's pretty amazing. We had the most God filled Holy Spirit filled marriage and wedding that it that could ever imagine. And he is also, he's the men's program coordinator and um, God uses him to love me for sure. And so you guys work together. Yeah. And I always <laughs> thought I wouldn't get married. Yeah. I always thought that's fine. I got Jesus. And then next thing, you know, God brings you an amazing man and our, our marriage and our love goes far beyond just that. God's using us as a powerhouse for the kingdom. And um, is I couldn't get, I mean, you couldn't, uh, you just, when you think the Lord can't bless you anymore, he does. He you does. Know? And um, because I'm thinking now, there's no way you could bless me anymore. After Bobby, there's nothing better. Well, just you wait. Right, right. I'm, um. I'm praying for all the time I want um, just to be used by the Lord um, to show his glory and just everything because he so deserves that and bring healing to other people 
Um, I've always wanted to just help people like, because of what I've been through and how my deliverance was, um, God gets to use me. He anoints us from what we've come from. So, um, he's anointed me to be able to, uh, sit in deliverance for others, you know, and I'm just praying that he opens that door even more and where I can just, I would love to be like Billy Graham <laughs> and run around and tell everybody about Jesus and bring set captives free and let people know, because if he can do it in me, he can do this for anybody. Um, I, I get told all the time that I'm just, I know we all are walking miracles for sure, you know, but, um, to be where I am mentally and spiritually and physically is just far beyond what could ever be imagined Yeah, that the Lord can do. It's, it's incredible. It, it really is. And like we said earlier, only God can do only this. God, only God can take the woman that you were and turn you into the woman that you are now. I'm wondering, Jennifer, for the people out there who have experienced uh, satanic ritual abuse or sexual trauma or or trauma of any kind, they're needing help with deliverance. Where can they go? What what maybe practical things uh, or pieces of advice can you give to them so that they can get healing, that they can be transformed by the Lord as well? Um. I know everybody's life is different, you know, um, I can, I can state how it happened for me is I think the first step is crying out to the Lord, crying out to God, because when you read Psalms 107, okay, it states on there, it's almost like when you read it, it's got all these different people's lives. It's like different stories. So ones, um, so that's stating to me that everyone has a different past and a different story, no matter what that past is and what that story is and where they are at that moment, all you do, the first step is crying out to him it, because then it states in 107 after that God swoops down. Okay. And he frees and delivers you and does all the things that he needs to for you, step by step by step, just like he did for me, step by step by step. He's got it all lined up, but we have to get to that point to cry out to him. And once you do that, depending on where you are and where God's placed you at that time, of what, who's, who he has placed around you, that's, that is different. Um I know that for me, I had to go in a facility like mine. Honestly, Terry, I'm a firm believer of it. And it's not just because I, I'm here doing that, but so many people are missing out on a true relationship with Jesus. And everybody has some type of life controlling issue. And I know that not everybody can go through a year long faith-based facility and not all all of them are the same, you know? Um, But um, I think everyone can use it because it's basically where you get your healing because you get a relationship with Jesus. It's not a religion. It's about true relationship. That's right. And, And a lot of time we're missing that relationship part 
we're going to church, we're getting all that, but we don't, we know the word. Even there's some people that know the word and aren't getting, but don't have a relationship. So especially the ones that have been through so much trauma and um, let's go as far as to say they've been through uh, SRA too, you know, they definitely are needing a year long program. Um, there are places I don't, I know mine. I mean, I don't mind. Um, I wish I could just help the world. I wish that I had a huge place and that I could just help every single person that I could and free and deliver them. I'm not trying to promote where I'm at, Terry. I just know where I'm at worked. Yeah. You know, um, and that's where God placed me to get to get the freedom and to get where I'm at today is God use this. And so that's why that that's why I'm so adamant about it is because only a place like this could have helped me. Yeah, that's it. I mean, I can't there wouldn't be enough psychiatrists and psychiatry out there to help me because only God could do that. Only God could do that. So where am I going to find that? And God has a situation for each one of them, a place for each one of them. I know he does because he swiftly directed me here. You know, and so there are places that are ran by God. And this just so happens to be one of them. And this is where I found God was right here in this room where I'm sitting right now. That's amazing. That's man. I just love the full circle-ness of, of how God is in the details and everything. If people are wanting to go through the program that you are running, if people are wanting more information on the facility that you work at, Jennifer, where can they go to find that information? www.newcf.net. That's our website. Um, I'm pretty sure it's got the office number on there. Um, I do not mind at all giving my email out, if that's okay with you. Yeah, go for it. All right. It's jennifer.malone, M-A-L-O-N-E, at newcf.net. So that's my email. And they're welcome to email me and um, start that process. It's like, don't allow the enemy to put fear in you. Um, He will come at you with lies and make you think that you're crazy or make you think you're alone and that people don't care and there's no way out. There is a way out. I promise it's through Jesus and how that process happens is different for everybody, but it's ultimately the same. Jesus Christ. Um, It's just taking that first step speaking, go to somebody, talk to somebody. God has got people around you right now. So don't shrink back and think that, uh, and walk in fear. Um, when you get to that point of desperation and you're ready and you're done, you'll know that moment. You'll know that moment. And you cry out to him. And I promise you, promise you that God's got it right after that moment. And just don't give up. Yeah, don't give up. Just trust, trust God 
to do the healing, right? Like he'll do the healing. We got to make ourselves available, right? Right. Like you said, we got to make ourselves available. We got to surrender. We got to be willing to heal. Jesus will do the healing and we'll have to put in work along the way. I mean, don't get me wrong, but, but God will, will bring that healing. He'll bring that transformation. And Jennifer, man, you know, I said this about you during the intro, but you are a warrior. You are one of the absolute strongest people that I've ever met. And I've even met you in person. We've just been able to communicate, uh, you know, through yeah. Zoom and the phone. I hope to someday meet you in person. If Me not, too. we got we got etern- eternity uh, together. But yeah. what what a warrior. And I am so blown away and, and happy and grateful that God has crafted an amazing story within your life and that he's being glorified in it, that Satan's butt is being kicked in it. And I have no doubt, Jennifer, that God is going to continue to use you and your husband to proclaim the good works of of Jesus Christ and to set the captives free and, and to bring healing. And so, man, watch out world, because Jennifer and Bobby and, and what they're doing it's just going to continue to um, populate the kingdom of heaven and and take people out of the the kingdom of darkness. I, I really believe yeah. that. Yeah, for so sure. Thank, so thank you so much, Jennifer, for being so willing and gracious to come on the show with your time. Um, this has been a true honor, and I'm just thankful again um, just to call you a friend now. Thank you, Terry. It is an honor. This is a good way to say thank you to God. I think there's a lot of people that sometimes forget that Satan is real. Our focus, and rightfully so, is often on God and his goodness and love and mercy. But it is important to be aware that we do have an enemy out there who is seeking to kill, steal, and destroy every aspect of our lives. And for those of us that have a relationship with Jesus Christ, we don't need to fear the enemy. But like I said, we do need to be aware of what he tries to do. And I believe Jennifer's testimony does just that. This stuff is real. There actually are people that gather together to worship Satan. They sacrifice children. They drink blood. They eat flesh. They're sold out for the kingdom of darkness. This isn't a fantasy that you read about in books or in TV shows or movies. This is real life, and I pray that everyone involved in satanic worship allows themselves to have their hearts be softened and transformed by Jesus before they spend eternity suffering with the false idol they worship. I'm so glad that's not Jennifer's story, and I'm so thankful that, like she said, God had his hand on her throughout her whole life and brought her to a point where she had no other choice but to surrender to him. And now she lives a completely transformed and redeemed life. And it's just so beautiful to hear. Jennifer really is an amazing warrior of God. And I know that he's going to continue to bless her and protect her as she seeks to expose the kingdom of darkness and to proclaim the goodness of God in her life. If you've been through satanic ritual abuse or spiritual trauma of any kind and are looking for deliverance, I'll attach the information to the center that Jennifer works at in the show notes, along with her email, so that you can reach out and get connected with someone who can help. 
And if you have any questions for Jennifer about her testimony, send me a DM on social media or use the hashtag AskTWT. If you were blessed by Jennifer's story, please leave a five-star review on Apple Podcasts and Spotify, because that helps the algorithms see this podcast and make it easier for people to find. That's it for this week's episode, but I'll be back next week with the last episode of Season 3. In the meantime, make sure you're living life in such a way that glorifies God and kicks Satan's butt. Peace. Peace.